The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Today I'd like to look at, explore a little bit about how the aspect or factor of concentration in the mind supports or contributes to the overall uh, what is its place I guess what's its place in the in the path of practice over the last number of weeks I've been just kind of slowly winding my way through the eightfold path and um, have talked about uh, this aspect of concentration over the last few weeks about what it means, how to cultivate it, and what the things are that get in its way, what are the things that support it. And uh, when we look at the Eightfold Path, which is the... um, I think I could talk about it as a set of tools that, or practices perhaps, that the Buddha suggested for us for helping us to understand why we struggle. Uh, helping us why understand why we get caught, reactive, uh, frustrated, annoyed, uh, confused, um, caught by things that we want, a whole host of ways that we get caught in our lives. And the Buddha suggested it's possible to... Um, not be so reactive, that we can actually meet what's happening in the present moment and be balanced at ease, relaxed around that. And that uh, the deepening of that, the deepening of that non-reactivity moves us to a place where we've let go or, or we're no longer uh, caught by um, wanting things to be other than they are. We can actually enter into this place where we are at ease with what is. And yet that doesn't mean that we're just sitting back and not doing anything. It it does allow us to enter into a place where when we are at ease with what is, rather than being reactive to it, rather than being um, caught by aversion and greed about what is, instead we begin to have a more um, wholesome, appropriate response to what is. And that this appropriate response is mm, kind of organic or more natural in a way. Um, It arises naturally as we find our way to letting go of reactivity It's not that we end up just sitting like a lump on a log. We end up responding and reacting to the world from love, from compassion, from joy, from balance of mind. And so the Buddha taught this path of practices, the Eightfold Path, starting with uh, wisdom, a wise understanding and wise intention as a way to orient ourselves towards um, this question of why we suffer the wisdom that the Buddha taught, the wisdom that um, he offered to us is quite specific it's, it's not you know it's not the wisdom about many you know, things in the world it's the wisdom around why do we suffer 
And how can we free ourselves from that suffering? And so wise understanding, wise view, is essentially uh, supports for helping to shift our perspective on the world to begin to see, to begin to at least contemplate the possibility that getting what we want and getting rid of what we don't want, trying to continually arrange the world to be as we think it should be, is um, not necessarily the best way to go about happiness. And so, until I heard these teachings, it never even crossed my mind that there was any other way to go about happiness. And so really, the, the first factor of the Eightfold Path is this reorientation of somebody saying, hey, you know, I found another way. It's really a lot more uh, helpful to align ourselves with truth rather than fight truth. One um, member of our community has a great way of putting things. He's kind of got a a very uh, witty, uh, funny sense of mind. And uh, he says... When you fight with reality, reality wins. Um, And so this is essentially what this understanding of the first uh, aspect of the Eightfold Path is. Wise understanding is understanding. (gasps) Reality wins. (laughs) So we, um, we begin to shift our perspective that rather than trying to fight reality, we begin to see what does it mean to come into alignment with reality. And that's not necessarily an easy thing to do. I'll talk more about that, in a, hopefully, in a few minutes. So with that kind of shift of perspective, maybe there's another way. Um, often we, uh, we move, you know, there's kind of the mm, engagement with the second factor of the Eightfold Path, which is intention to not just sit here and listen to these teachings, but let's see what we can do. Let's engage with these teachings. Because what the Buddha taught essentially was not just something to take in with our intellectual minds, but a set of practices, a way to learn how to meet the world. And that, you know, that shift of perspective, uh, one of the things it's suggesting is that meet what is here with mindfulness. Meet what is here and um, begin to recognize how does that reactivity get born? How, does, how do we not like what's happening and like what's happening, want to hold on, get rid of, push away? And so the, the whole set of practices the Buddha taught were kind of about investigating, looking at, being with reality, being with things as they are, and beginning to see how we kind of try to navigate that. And so the... Uh, hearing these teachings perhaps encourages, encourages us. You know, it's like somebody says, um, I found another way. You might want to try this. You know, some of us may be ready to hear that and others of us may not. I certainly wasn't ready to hear it until I thought I had exhausted all other possibilities. Um, and, and at that point it was like, well, I don't understand how this is going to work, this Meeting reality, not trying to change reality. I don't understand how that's going to work. But nothing else has worked to make me uh, feel at ease in my life, so I might as well try this. And so that was kind of uh, my first engagement with the intention to work with what the Buddha taught. 
And so that's the second aspect of the Eightfold Path, wise intention. It's kind of an orientation of our actions towards exploring the wisdom, the understanding that the Buddha uh, suggested. And from there, uh, moving into action uh, are the set of, um, a set of three aspects of the Eightfold Path. The first two, wise understanding, wise intention, and then three aspects of the Eightfold Path around how we behave in the world. Wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. And uh, the suggestion around those is that behaving in ways, and come back to the whole question of suffering, right? It's, uh, this is the whole exploration, is how can we find our way towards freedom from suffering. And so the Buddha says, well, look at how you engage in the world. Is there any rub in how you engage in the world? Is there any suffering being created in how you engage with the world? And that if we're interested in this question of letting go of suffering, we need to look at how we're engaging in the world and how we might be participating in constructing suffering in the world. And so a wise speech being... um, you know, engaging skillfully with our speech, not creating harm. Essentially, these ethical, this ethical component of the Eightfold Path is about looking at engaging in non-harming. So non-harming with our speech, with our actions, with how we um, earn a livelihood. And so it, it, uh, he asks us to look at that. You know. So why speech? Um, engaging, um, avoiding um, harsh speech and uh, divisive speech and uh, false speech. Those are, you know, ways that harm is actively often created when we, you know, speak out of bitterness and harshness and divisiveness and uh, lying also, The fourth kind of uh, wise speech is perhaps a little less obvious in terms of how it creates harm. Um, The fourth kind of uh, wise speech is abstaining from or avoiding idle chatter. And, um, you know, if we think about that, how it might be creating harm, it's in a lot of ways it's creating harm in terms of um, just filling our minds with trivia, unimportant stuff. And so it's not so much actively perhaps harming in the world, but it may be just not contributing to helpfulness. Um, You know, this area around wise speech, around uh, refraining from idle chatter, just a couple pieces. Um, One is that in my own exploration of this, I've seen, you know, idle chatter means I think the definition is speech without any purpose. And so, you know, what we might think of as idle chatter, you know, talking about the weather or something, um, it depends on the context. You know, it could be that it's important to talk about the weather to convey information to somebody, or it could be that, you know, that that's a way that there's a connection happening between people that don't know each other very well. I mean, like... So many times going into the the grocery store, just a little bit of, you know, 
what sounds perhaps like idle chatter, so, you know, with the, with the um, teller, I mean, the grocery store clerk or the bank teller. You know, it's a beautiful day outside, isn't it? You know, it's, it's, the, the speech itself isn't what the point is. The connection of heart is the intention underlying that. And so as I explore that, it's not so much about what I'm saying. It's about what the intention is underneath. You know, is there a purpose of connecting with kindness and friendliness? And that would be fine. That would be wise speech. The other thing just to say about idle chatter um, is that uh, I was exploring this topic and doing some research through the teachings, the commentaries and the teachings of the Buddha. And in one place, in one of the commentaries, I saw this list of the four kinds of wise speech and it, it was talking about how these four kinds of wise speech were connected with freedom. You know, that at the more free our mind gets, the less we are inclined to engage in these kinds of speech. And so uh, false speech is like one of the first ones to go. You know, it's like the more, the more we value truth and aligning ourselves with truth and reality, the more our minds let go of wanting to engage in speaking falsely. Harsh speech and idle speech are a little later to go. Um, you know, and it said that idle, idle speech, it doesn't go until like the very end, until you're fully awakened. Um, because the mind tends to be restless. And uh, so I take that with a little bit of, um, you know, give myself a break. <laughs> so... In any case, back to the, um, you know, this ethical aspect, you know, wise speech, wise action, uh, finding ways to engage in the world that are non-harming, and um, wise action, you know, refraining from taking life, refraining from taking what's not given, refraining from engaging with our sexuality in harmful ways. Again, just, you know, looking at how our actions may be harmful and avoiding those actions. Um, these are trainings. So we um, we notice when I, I kind of like think of them almost as mindfulness bells. We think of them as you know, if we're about to engage in one of these things, you know, picking up a shoe to smash a spider on the wall. It's like, wait a minute, you know, this is not the orientation that I'm hoping to engage with. You know, maybe I can capture the spider and put it outside. Um, so you know, just using them almost as Wake-up bells. I, wait a minute, I'm getting ready to do something that's going to cause harm. Let me reevaluate. And then if we have caused harm out of a moment of mindfulness, mindlessness, you know, if we automatically slap that mosquito and kill the mosquito, rather than um, flagellating ourselves and telling ourselves what a horrible person we are, uh, Instead, recognizing, okay, that was harm. There was some harm created there. And that's not the orientation I want. Can I try to notice more clearly in the future? You know, so it's, it's more about learning from our actions rather than beating ourselves up about things like that. And wise livelihood is just, you know, how we engage in our... Um, how we engage in our... Uh, earning a living. And, you know, essentially the easiest way to look at that is, is our livelihood being um, 
act, are we acting in our work by fulfilling wise speech and wise action? Essentially, you know, looking at that as a kind of a guideline for us. And then the, the uh, last three aspects of the Eightfold Path are really where the internal exploration of our hearts and minds come in. These three, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, kind of come together to allow us to begin to meet things as they are, to meet reality. Um, we have to engage with some sense of um, energy. You know, it's, it's not going to happen without some sense of purposeful engagement. That's wise energy. And the, the energy there is directed towards these teachings. The, the very definition of wise effort includes understanding what leads us to suffering and understanding what leads us away from suffering. And avoiding those things, um, letting go of those things that lead us towards suffering in our minds. You know, so recognizing that, you know, uh, anger, arising, the arising of anger, we recognize that that, hmm, that doesn't feel so good. And, and it pulls us into this terrain of struggle and suffering. Many of the difficult emotions are in this, this category. Now this uh, abstaining from letting go in this aspect of wise effort, it brings in the quality of mindfulness. We need to be able to witness, to, to be aware of what's happening. To recognize, oh, anger is happening in the present moment. As opposed to being caught in our anger, acting on it, or whatever the the uh, difficulty is loneliness or fear or confusion or pride or um, whatever it is that, that uh, is catching us. And we see that it's not so helpful. So the, um, the aspect of wise effort in, in a way kind of almost automatically brings in wise mindfulness and that we need to be able to be mindful of what's happening in order to recognize, oh, this isn't so helpful. This isn't so skillful. This is, or this is skillful. So when qualities like kindness, compassion, friendliness, patience arise, we can recognize, oh, those are helpful. Those, those are supportive. And we work in a way, the activity there is to cultivate and maintain when beautiful qualities, wholesome qualities of mind arise. And so mindfulness and effort work together for us. Um, around that wise effort, um, one of the biggest learnings for me has been that uh, the very willingness to be mindful of something difficult the very willingness, for example, around anger to, to be aware, oh, anger is happening in the present moment. That mindfulness of the difficult experience is already helping the mind learn how to let go of it. So that the teaching on wise effort where, you know, avoid and abandon are the two words that are often associated with unskillful qualities of mind. Avoid and abandon things that um, are motivated out of greed, out of aversion, out of delusion. 
We often take that as being something that we need to do. But more and more I've seen in my own practice, it's not so much something I can do, the letting go. If anger is arising in the present moment, that is the reality of the present moment. And the, the benefit of this practice is essentially the recognition that is the reality. And in the mindfulness, being able to be mindful of that as the reality, there's some choice in how we engage with it. Rather than being you know, pulled into the automatic reactivity out of that state of mind, we may be able to refrain from acting on it. And instead, can we be with it? And so the abandoning, in a way, to me is about abandoning acting out of, but it's not necessarily about saying in our minds, oh, there's anger arising, let me, you know, be gone anger. It's like, we can't do that. You know, our minds don't, are just not that amenable to being told to let go of something that has that kind of power. But we can often, when we're aware, mindful, whew, there's the... Uh, this is the experience and we know it so there's a sense of a little bit of awareness around what's happening we can sometimes choose to not act on it and instead meet it, be with it and that itself is in the direction of letting go letting go of the pull to acting on it and the willingness to be with with mindfulness that willingness to meet with mindfulness. I've said this many times, but it kind of gives the mind an education. When we meet the experience of a difficult um, emotion, you know, a strong sense of self-righteousness or pride or anger or frustration or um, irritation, when we meet those, those states, the mind begins to see that it kind of is a, a disturbance to, to in the field of what might be well-being. You know, that, that uh, the mind begins to understand that the unskillful emotions motivated out of greed, aversion, and delusion, that acting on them does not lead us towards well-being. And so the mind itself begins to understand that way does not lie happiness. And it begins to let go. That letting go of the unskillful tendencies of mind isn't something we can necessarily do. But the willingness to meet, the willingness to witness them. Kind of like, you know, a kid that's, you know, saying, pay attention to me, pay attention to me, pay attention to me. It's like, yeah, okay, I'll pay attention to you. And then suddenly that, that kid goes, oh, oh, right, I'm being paid attention to now. I don't have to do anything. Um, kind of that way that, you know, when we pay attention to our difficulty, it's like, oh, it's kind of like that, that difficulty begins to uh, learn the, the mind and that difficulty begin to learn how to navigate towards the releasing of it. So effort and mindfulness come together to uh, support a learning about how our own minds 
get us caught. I mean, at the beginning, I said, you know, the Buddha found and discovered that, you know, the way we typically go about our lives trying to find happiness isn't so helpful. Trying to get what we want, get get rid of what we don't want. And through this practice of wise effort and wise mindfulness, the mind begins to learn the truth of that. It begins to understand. It is true that trying to hold on to something that I like that contraction itself creates a feeling of uh, tightness, of tension, of offness. The holding itself creates a feeling of offness. Likewise, the action to get rid of, that pushing away, the very pushing away itself is a feeling of offness. And the mind begins to understand that. And so the... uh, third aspect of this mind training is wise concentration. Wise concentration um, allowing us to be more stable with what's happening in the present moment. Kind of that might be a definition of what wise concentration is. That uh, it's the ability of the mind to stay in the present moment with whatever is happening. Either in a form of... um, Uh, staying in the present moment with an intention to gather and collect around one experience, such as the breath, or an intention to stay in the present moment, to just meet the flow of experience. Both of those are concentration. The stability of the mind in the present moment, the non-wandering mind, the non-distracted mind, is a concentrated mind. So how does this help us? I mean, concentration is the last factor of the Eightfold Path. It is the, um, so we've got wise understanding, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. The Buddha said, cultivate these, they will help you. They will help you to understand and be with the truth. They will help you to understand and be non-reactive to the truth. They will support a more skillful response to the truth, to reality. So wise concentration itself is not the end of the path. I mean, it is the last factor of the Eightfold Path, but actually all the factors of the Eightfold Path fold together. They come together. And actually that's one definition of wise concentration in the text. It says wise concentration is, a, is the form of being stable in the present moment when uh, wise when all the other factors of the Eightfold Path are present. So one way of defining wise concentration is the stability of the mind that has wise understanding, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, and wise mindfulness as its support. That's the way it's framed. That wise concentration is the concentration that develops with the Eightfold Path or the other factors of the Eightfold Path as its support. And so... um, we we kind of look at it as a a whole piece. It's not just the concentration in and of itself. And in fact, um, you know, the the way the Buddha kind of came into the exploration when he left his home, when he left his home at um, the age of 29, his question was around suffering. His question was around 
Is it possible to be free of suffering? What is this suffering? How is it created? That he understood that to be essentially the problem of the human condition, this struggle that we lived with. And he did see that the way beings were engaged in living didn't seem to help. And so he, was, he set out for another way. He didn't have somebody telling him, here, here's the path. He essentially went in search of a path that might free himself from suffering. And he went out to talk to, discuss, and practice with the renunciates of his time, many of whom practiced concentration as a way out of this suffering. And it's true that when we are in a state of concentration, we are in a state of release from our usual condition of suffering. It feels really good to be in a space of concentration. In that space of concentration, in a way, almost by definition, the habitual tendencies of mind towards sense desire and ill will, you know, the kind of wanting to hold on to things and wanting to push things away, in a way, those um, uh, uh, of the sense world those have fallen away and instead the mind is living in a very beautiful, whole kind of uh, experience that has a deep sense of well-being. And so the Buddha learned about these practices of concentration. He learned about them and explored them, felt those deep states of well-being while in the state of concentration, and then having to live life, having to eat food, having to go um, to the bathroom, having to, you know, do all the things of life, you can't sit in concentration forever. You have to come out of that state and live life. And what he found for himself was, you know, the suffering comes right back when I come out of those states of concentration. That is not the path I'm looking for. I'm looking for something that can end suffering, not just temporarily relieve it. And so he, he you know, talked to a number of different teachers. He you know, went and practiced with a number of different teachers. And each time he found, well, they get to maybe subtler states of concentration, you know, deeper places of peace, but coming out, there's still the suffering. And so uh, he found for himself that this concentration of stillness, of setting aside the world, while it's a beautiful place to hang out, provides a lot of ease and peace in the moment, it was not the answer to what he was looking for. And so he kept looking, he kept searching. And um, one day he... uh, had a memory while he was, you know, he was, oh, actually he went off to do austerities too. He not only did all the practices of concentration, so finding your way to these blissful, peaceful spaces, he went off to practice um, um, the uh, renunciate uh, self-life-denying practices, um, such as refraining from sleep and um, eating very little, uh, he got down at one point, it said, to a grain of rice a week, I think. And he lost so much weight that um, he could, you know, touch his... He, it said, it's, it's very visceral, that he could touch his backbone when he touched his belly. 
You know, just, ugh, I just feel the visceralness of that. And he could barely sit up. His hair was falling out. You know, his, his uh, skin was malcolored because he was so mal- malnourished and he was, you know, falling over. And, and at some point he's like, well, this doesn't seem to be the way either. <laughs> so he started eating again. And, um, and then, um, so this is kind of like finding your way between the extremes of sense, uh, of, of pleasure and uh, um, avoidance of pleasure in a way. You know, he's like, well, the pleasure side didn't work. Maybe, maybe the way is to go the other way. And so he, he ended up finding what he calls the middle path, which is between these two extremes. And in his exploration of it, he um, had a memory come up after he got healthy again. I imagine it took some time for him to recover his health after having eaten one grain of rice for so long. After he recovered his health, he was exploring his own mind, and he had a memory of a time when he was a boy and watching his father um, uh, do a kind of a ritual plowing in the field at the beginning of spring. And he, at that time, kind of spontaneously entered into a a very um, peaceful uh, space, that is, it was said to be like the, the, one, of the, one of the states of concentration that um, uh, doesn't restrict. It's like the, the deeper the concentration is, the, more, the less, the less uh, access there is to sense experience. And so it's said that he entered into a kind of a, a very, um, a state of concentration that was more accessible, perhaps, to sense experience. And um, he thought, oh, is this the way? And uh, he understood, yes, this is the way. And so this is interesting to me because it is a form of concentration that he came to as being part of the path. But, you know, so what's the difference? I I reflected on this. What's the difference in this understanding about how concentration is a part of the path versus what he understood before? This is not the path. These states of concentration are not the path. And I think part of it has to do with the purpose to which the concentration is being used. So um, in the early teachings that he got with his teachers who taught him those very still places. The stillness itself was the point. That was what they were going for. And what he discovered, I think, in that memory and that uh, exploration of that state of concentration that still had some contact with, it it wasn't as still it was uh, a concentration that was non-distracted from the present moment, but not um, uh, apart from what's being experienced in the present moment. So he, uh, I think what he discovered in that time was something along the lines of concentration can be used as a tool towards exploring how suffering is created in the mind as opposed to being an end in and of itself. And so that, I think, is the orientation of concentration. It is a tool for us. It is not the goal of our practice. 
but it supports us to be able to meet experience. The way it tends to really support us is uh, we come into the present moment. I mean, there's different ways we, we come into the present moment and, and get concentrated. We do get concentrated at times on a single experience, like the breath. And the, you know, that can be very helpful, actually. The stilling that happens, the, the mind getting so, uh, not so much pulled out into all the variety of sense experience can help us to be actually more attuned to what is going on here in the mind and body. So the, uh, you know, the, the settling in to uh, the present moment through being attentive to the breath um, allows the mind to kind of learn its way out of its habitual kinds of going out to find happiness here or um, going out to get rid of something there. And it begins to find its way to a, a more stable, uh, non-reactive place. And then the Buddha said that from that place of non-reactivity, when the mind is more balanced, then we can start to investigate what's happening in our minds and our bodies. So essentially, you know, the key distinction between the practice of concentration uh, for the, the sake of concentration and the use of concentration as a tool in waking up and in understanding our minds is that when we're practicing concentration for the sake of concentration and at times in our meditative practice here we do that but the, 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 the orientation for that is that we are orienting towards stillness we're orienting towards deeper and deeper kinds of quiet in the mind we come in, pay attention to the breath, a lot of the body falls away, a lot of the other sensations of the body. The breath itself gets more and more still the more we pay attention to it until there's very little sensation happening. The body gets very, very quiet. So there's, it's a, it, the, the direction for concentration practice itself is towards quietness and stillness. That's the orientation in um, the using concentration to support investigation, the orientation is rather than towards stillness, the question becomes, what's changing? Can the mind be present, stay in the present moment with change, without leaping out after change, without trying to follow the change uh, trying to fix it or change it or hold on to certain parts of the change and get rid of other parts of the change. So the orientation in using concentration is can we allow that stability of mind to support watching how things change. And this is where the insights of um, our practice begin to arise when we attune to change. And so in the guided meditation, I drop that in as a possibility that, you know, actually in paying attention to the breath, we could attune more and more towards um, 
kind of the stillness, the stilling quality that happens, the settling quality that happens as we pay attention to the breath. Or we can pay attention to how is the breath changing. This is a way of orienting towards using concentration as a tool to explore change. The exploration of change is helpful for us, is important for us, because the, um, the mind is fairly deluded about change. <laughs> um, one of the ways in which we fight reality, one of the main ways in which we fight reality and lose, <laughs> is by trying to stem the tide of change. Or by trying to, you know, construct something that we can hold on to for a little while because this configuration of reality right now, this feels good, this feels happy. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this reality together and hold on to that. And we can do that for short periods of time, maybe even somewhat longer periods of time, perhaps. You know, we can c- construct a situation that, you know, a job that we really appreciate, you know, that may last for some period of time. Uh, a relationship that feels very... Um, um, nourishing. You know, that can perhaps last for some period of time, but things change. You know, we lose interest or we get a new boss or our partner, um, uh, you know, our relationship gets to the place where it's, you know, not in that first flush of love and it's like we're more in the nitty-gritty of life and it's not quite so lovely and wonderful anymore. So things change, and we are um, continually, one of our habitual ways of meeting the world is to try to stop impermanence. And in fact, we believe it's possible in some extent. You know, we, we somehow think it, it's possible, or that, um, you know, what the goal of, of our lives is in terms of happiness is we create these little bubbles of situation where it feels pretty good and we we may know that it's going to fall apart but we've got that one and while we're in that one we're madly trying to figure out how do we create the next one because we know that one is ultimately going to fall apart but you know so so we kind of know about impermanence but we kind of uh, believe that we can create a situation that's got some sense of permanence to it. And if you look at your own mind and how it's relating to experience, you will see very much it relates to how can I keep this? How can I get rid of that? And there's a sense in that of if I get this, that's what it's going to do it for me. That's what's going to make me happy. So that whole sense that that's going to make me happy is not acknowledging the truth that that thing is going to go away. That that thing is impermanent. And so the uh, constructing, uh, let's say not constructing, but the the tools of wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration that allow us begin to attune to the reality of change that's a doorway through which we begin to really understand the truth of... We begin to understand the truth that that things do change. And we begin to understand that fighting that reality is suffering. It is um, a recipe for struggle. 
to fight the reality that things change. And so as the mindfulness effort and concentration come together to be able to meet this changing world and recognize, yes, everything does change, the wisdom that grows there is that it doesn't make sense to hold on to changing experience. We feel, we recognize the suffering of trying to hold on, either to hold on by getting rid of or keeping things. It doesn't make sense. The mind begins to understand that at a very deep level. And so the concentration serves a couple purposes here, the concentration. It serves the purposes of helping to keep us in the present moment so that we can witness this change. And it also provides a container in our mind that allows us to be more willing to acknowledge the truth of change. Because that container of concentration gives us a uh, a more easeful place from which to meet change. So we can actually not fight it so much. When the, the mind is in that place of concentration of non-resistance, non-reactivity, it feels good. It feels uh, easeful. And so that place of being in a sta- stable, in that place of stability, of not reacting to things, uh, gives us the not only the stability, but the ease of heart and mind to be able to meet that truth of impermanence. There's some other truths that we meet also, but I want to leave a little bit of time for comments or questions. So, um, anything? Yeah. Um, no, I think the mics are under. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Um, I'm going back, but something I started thinking about when you were talking about concentration, I'm doing the six-week loving-kindness on Wednesday nights, and I'm finding when I practice loving-kindness with the words that, for me, it's it's really good concentration because I I can... The breath, I still wonder, but Uh with the words, I actually really feel when I say those things what is going on inside me uh-huh. so I'm able to kind of narrow in and, and it's, it's, there's a lot of wisdom there because it's telling me the parts that I um, protect myself against or I, I might close, shut down mm-hmm. during as I'm reciting them in my mind so when you were talking about the concentration I, I like it because it really brings me in the absolute moment of the word and the feelings that uh-huh. are going on. So there's nothing else that's like pulling at me for attention. Yes, exactly. So yeah. I'm, I'm really liking that, and I actually was practicing it when you weren't speaking. Uh-huh. And, that's and great. Us. I mean, so, you know, we all... Um, uh, there's a way in for all of us towards the st- stability of mind, and this is, this is one of many tools to use to help cultivate that and you know so for some people that's extremely helpful to use that kind of um you know those words those phrases of 
kindness. It helps to ground us and orient us. And that very, you know, repeating those phrases and connecting with how is it for us to repeat those phrases? Because it's not just the phrase; it's not just repeating the phrases. It's it's got to do with noticing too. So that's how that practice is connected with mindfulness. You you notice what's going on inside of you, and so that is one way in towards concentration. And it does create that sense of stability. You're no longer being you know pulled out of the present moment, and so that is the the the, the space of concentration. And it's very helpful, as you've seen. I'm wondering if instead of um, starting with the breath, which I've been doing for, say, 10, 20 minutes, and then I go into loving kindness, maybe I should reverse it, which would allow me to use the breath in a different way. So I would encourage that exploration because um, I think a couple weeks ago I I talked about, you know, finding our way into concentration. I don't know if you were here for that one or not, but there's so many different avenues um, that... I often suggest for people, if you find something that feels easy for you, start there. You know, start at that place. So if for you, using metta is the most natural way to begin, start there. And then, yeah, then see, you know, after you've done that, that uh, the metta practice for 15, 20 minutes, what might your relationship to the breath be? And you don't have to go to the breath either. I mean, you know, you could just do the metta. As the as the way to in towards a stable mind, so yeah, I mean it, it's it's very flexible here. I mean we're cultivating these qualities of mind, and I think it's it's beautiful that the 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 Buddha highlighted you know these are the important qualities, and then he went through and named a whole bunch of different ways that we could access those. Um, you know he's kind of a master at being able to say oh this mind, this kind of mind would probably helpful to do this. And, uh, you know, our typical way of thinking, well, I know that I'm better at this than that, so maybe I should work on the thing I'm not so good at. It's much easier for us with med- in meditation to go through the doorway that's most natural. So start there. Yeah. So I've been thinking... Um, uh, reflecting a lot about my need to control things. And I think I mentioned this a couple months ago, but I'm sure you won't remember, that, that a lot of times when, my, when I'm sitting, my mind goes into some sort of fantasy or replay of some event in my life, and, and the motive seems to be that I want control over it in a different way than I can actually get in reality. Uh-huh. So there's a pleasantness to, to having the fantasy yes. of control. Yes. yes. Uh-huh. So what do I do about it? So first of all, <laughs> recognize, I mean, it's kind of like what the Buddha found. You know, it's like, um, okay, so recognize that that's happening. And then, you know, as the Buddha coming out of the concentration stage, like, well, that was pleasant, but I'm still left here with, not having control. <laughs> you know, so using some reflection perhaps when you come out of I mean, because we can't necessarily stop the fantasy. I mean, you, you might... Noticed. Yeah, so, you know, you'll wake up into it at some point. And then you recognize, first of all, that sense of what that pleasantness is. And, and then acknowledge, too, I mean, the pleasantness is about an idea. The pleasantness is about a construct 
of the mind. And, um, uh, you know, in the coming out of it, you can recognize that that pleasantness has nothing to do with reality. And here you are, <laughs> here you are, you know, so, so just acknowledging. So, so one of the things there, one of the teachings there is the Buddha says, yeah, there's pleasure in the way the mind kind of engages in its usual habits. Recognize, his teaching is something like, recognize just how far that happiness extends. So, you know, how satisfying is that? I mean, it's satisfying perhaps while you're in, caught in it, lost in it. But when that goes away, as it does, because, you know, we can't live in our fantasies, um, we see that it's ultimately not so satisfying. So the mind begins to learn that that pattern is not so satisfying. So that's one, that's one of the pieces around it. You know, you will find yourself caught in it, and there's not much you can do when you're caught in it. So in that case, using this exploration after the fact of, well, how satisfying actually was that? It felt good then, but... Here, here I am. You know, so, so recognizing the unreliability of that satisfaction, that's one piece. Then the other one is, if you can wake up into that fantasy, feel what it feels like then and there, and um, you know, just reminding yourself in that place, this is just thought. You know, acknowledging to yourself, this is just a construct of mind. Because that's what's happening in that moment. It's just the mind is constructing. And so, um, you know, see it as a construct of mind. And in seeing that it's a construct of mind, again, the, the way it hooks us is because we are, we're not seeing it as a construct of mind. We're believing it in that moment. And so it's, it's poking a little bubble, a little hole in the bubble of the belief in the reality of that state. So acknowledging to yourself, if there's any, any sense of being able to be present in there, it's like, okay, yep, this is a thought arising in the present moment. Just a thought arising in the present moment. And seeing how is it for you when you are in the present moment having that fantasy, is it all actually feeling good? Or is there some sense of that needing to control itself there's a gripping there. There's a, a tightening and a... Yeah, I have little doubt about the need for control still being there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Even as, in as limited a way as I've been able to apply mindfulness to that. And you may situation. be able to explore the feeling of needing to be in control in, in other areas of your life where uh, it's smaller or less kind of charged. Mm. Um, so, f- you know, getting familiar with that feeling of what does it feel like to need to be in control and then watching it, you know, it, I did this around a number of different aspects of my mind, you know, impatience is still one I'm looking at. Um, but it's just like, okay, you know, impatience is a pattern in my mind, like wanting to control is a pattern in your mind. It's a habit. And so just beginning to look kind of orienting, well, can I notice when impatience arises? Get familiar with it. You know, sometimes the impatience is huge and really difficult, hard to be with in a way. Sometimes it's like, and other times as I began to orient and explore this quality of impatience, it's like, impatience is like everywhere. It's when I'm opening the door to my car. It's when I'm brushing my teeth. It's got all kinds of little, tiny manifestations. 
So you might begin to notice that there are little ways, like the way you open your refrigerator and look in it. Oh, there's some sense of control there, you know, some sense of needing to control. You know, oh, they didn't put the milk back in the right spot. Oh, needing to control. Little things like that, you might find that you can be with the feeling of wanting to control when it's less charged. And that... um, that exploration will support you when it gets more charged. Often, you know, there's a range of our ability to be present for things. You know, when things are really charged, we get caught. Can't do much about that. So it's kind of like we work, we work from both sides. We work at, at the, you know, we kind of orient and attune ourselves to where we can meet the pattern where it's a little less challenging, and then we attune and orient to when we wake up from really having been caught. Okay, what's that like? What's it like now? So we need to stop. Thank you all.